here in South Africa. It is dedicated to those individuals and community groups that are supporting both the formal and informal processes that are shaping our cities and our spaces. Today we're looking at the issues of land and land reform in South Africa. More directly we're considering the findings in the context of the recently uh, reported land reform panel report published a few weeks ago. Land reform has arguably been the biggest political issue in South Africa and remains a constant and dynamic political issue facing decision makers and administrators alike. The question of land, how it be placed within the context of the constitution, the issue of expropriation without compensation are highly emotive, highly politicised issues and understandably given the deep-rooted historical legacy of racially based discrimination relating to land in the history of South Africa which effectively denied non-white ownership of land. In 2018, President Ramaphosa announced a 10-person advisory panel that would look specifically at this issue of land reform. It was a varied panel and the President went on to suggest that these uh, panel members were eminently qualified by virtue of an academic background, professional experience, social entrepreneurship and activism related to both the agricultural economy as well as land policy. The President went on to say that the panel is expected to provide perspectives on land policy in the context of persisting land inequality, unsatisfactory land and agrarian reform and uneven urban land development. Professor Ruth Hall is our esteemed guest today. Professor Hall is a professor at the University of the Western Cape. She's a graduate of both the University of Cape Town and of Oxford University in the UK. As one of the panel members who served on this advisory panel, Professor Hall has participated in the debate, pulled together the findings, and has very kindly agreed to talk to the Talking Transformation podcast. She's written extensively on issues of agrarian reform, land redistribution, and poverty. She's frequently seen and quoted, interviewed in the media, and is very much a respected figure in this discussion. We really appreciated her time and her insights in supporting us in understanding this issue in this particular episode of the Talking Transformation podcast. So it's a Wednesday afternoon, we're here in Cape Town and we're at the, uh, the home of Professor Ruth Hall. I'm with my colleague Pervez Abdallah and we've come to talk to uh, Professor Hall about the land reform uh, panels report that was released uh, a couple of weeks ago. Some of the broad perspectives, some of the key concepts and some of the main recommendations and how they relate to uh, the different spheres of government is going to be part of our conversation. So uh, Ruth, thank you so much for inviting us into your space. And we're very much looking forward to speaking to you. Thanks so much. Looking forward to it. Ruth, I mean, the report highlights some profound and sort of wide-ranging proposals and recommendations for municipalities and the built environment profession. It seems to uh, have some very clear uh, indicators around where we're not getting things right. Um, It also is being very clear in terms of uh, some of the statistical base that we're working from. Plus minus 80% of the South African population in urban areas working with off-register rights. 
or no rights in terms of land tenure that are recognized in law. This is quite quite a complex space that we're coming from. Um, we're deliberately today not going to go into the whole question of uh, expropriation without compensation. Uh, I think that's another subject for another time and that's been widely reported uh, in the media. But some of the headlines from your side, uh, having worked in that space for the last year or so, um, I've touched on a couple, but I think maybe some that you'd like to pick up on uh, during the conversation. Thanks so much. Well, I think that uh, there are a few ways in which um, the recommendations of this uh, panel uh, take us into redefining what land reform is really about. And I think that one uh, very significant uh, shift that's proposed by the panel is that land reform should not be defined exclusively as a rural endeavor. Mm. That, in fact, land reform, if we think about it properly, is, is a lens through which we look at a spatial reconfiguration and overcoming the spatial legacy of apartheid in both rural and urban contexts. So that's one. It's wrong to think of land reform as exclusively rural and to equate it with agriculture. So it's very significant, I think, for instance, that the report says urban land reform has been missing, there needs to be policy development, there needs to be new relationships between institutions, um, and we need to think about non-agricultural uh, uses of land and the diverse reasons why people want land. People want land for access to housing, uh, for, um, for agriculture, large and small scale, for mixed uses, for business development, mm -hmm. for recreation. So we need to think about land reform uh, in a very broad context. The second thing that I think is very significant uh, is the emphasis um, not only on the three traditional pillars of land reform. Remember that since the 1990s, we've had three um, features of land reform, that is land restitution and land claims, redistribution, which is uh, broadening out uh, access to land, including um, by by farm workers, the poor, emerging farmers, etc. So that's a more discretionary process where people don't have to prove their historical claims to land. Then there's a third, which is about tenure reform, which is recognizing and uh, providing opportunities for upgrading and defending uh, a variety of forms of tenure rights. Uh, but our panel report made a proposal that there should be a fourth leg of land reform, and that is land administration. Uh, and I think that this is a very significant um, move forward. Remember that you know most people have rights off register, as you say. Um, we have very weak systems of land administration in South Africa. In fact, it's one of these enormous inequalities uh, that some people who own private title have very significant state support in terms of the administration sure. of their land rights, while most people who have other kinds of land rights don't have that kind of support. So I would emphasize that those are two significant ways in which we've, we've tried to suggest that land reform could be uh, thought of in a more um, all-embracing, significant way. Uh, it could bring change not just to a small number of emerging black commercial farmers, as has been the case up to now, but in fact could be a way in which uh, the majority of South Africans' access to and rights to land could be supported. I mean, two alarming but perhaps not unsurprising findings of the report on that yeah. land administration. I'm just quoting here. State land administration is excessively fragmented and disjointed. Some contexts broken down completely. The second one, 25 years into democratic rule, there seems to be incomplete information regarding the question of who owns what land in South Africa. These are the basics. These are the fundamental building blocks, not so. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, we are operating in... Um, somewhat in a vacuum in terms of access to information. 
both in terms of getting a very clear sense of uh, both state land um, and also privately owned land in South Africa. So, uh, you know, I think it's well well recognized that by the time uh, we, we achieved democracy in the 1990s, uh, the significant holdings of public land were in disarray with different parts of government, different tiers and spheres of government holding land, uh, and that actually the call for a land audit has been you know, a refrain for many years. There have been two attempts to get a handle on state land, um, the most, uh, well, in 2013 and then in 2017. Uh, but that doesn't even cover all categories of state sure. land. We don't have much information, for instance, around putting together the picture of what do municipalities own. Uh, and in some contexts, there are parts of the state that are not even aware of all their land holdings. Um, with regards to privately owned land, who owns what? Um, again, we have very weak information. There are a lot of figures bandied about, but the truth is, the degree to which there's been racial transformation in terms of who owns land um, is, is really not well understood. Um, we don't have a Population Registration Act, um, and, um, and what we do know anecdotally is that ownership of at least rural agriculturally zoned land has become much more concentrated. Uh, so uh, larger, larger land holdings as certain properties are merged into larger farms, for instance, um, and a smaller number of owners. So there are trends that we know about, um, but we still are operating a bit in the dark with regards to knowledge about who owns what. It's a, bit, it's a big issue, for sure. Prof, you, you mentioned earlier that uh, the, the launching point for the land reform report is that land reform isn't just about agrarian reform or rural land reform. It's about spatial reconfiguration, as you said, mm. which includes the urban space. And in our context specifically, uh, in the municipal context, um, you know, we, we hear a lot about this term called special justice. Yeah. Uh, do you think special justice is the same as land reform? And if so, then how do you see the two concepts working together? Wow, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I do think that um, land reform does need to be about spatial justice. Um, let's put it this way. Uh, I think that uh, the idea of land reform, if we think about it historically around the world, has been really about uh, reconfiguring class relations primarily. Um, in many contexts, land reforms have been undertaken where there have been, there's been a great political upheaval, revolutions, you know, overthrowing a, a class of landlords. Uh, um, and. And, you know, these are very significant breaks from the past, and it's all been about changing who holds property in society on what terms, which is the basis for, for, for economic power um, and, uh, and for, for power across different sectors of the economy. My view is that um, the land reform process in South Africa hasn't had a special agenda whatsoever. So one of the significant criticisms has been that it's been reliant on a so-called willing buyer, willing seller approach. In other words, there's no compulsion on any property owner to make available their land. Um, and a willing buyer, willing seller was basically a cho choice not to use the constitutional powers to expropriate property. Um, so. There we have a government uh, that has these powers since the constitution in 96 has chosen not to expropriate and has been reliant on owners to offer properties for sale. And the result is that we have a very spatially disjointed land reform program. In terms of redistribution, uh, there is a lot of uh, land being offered for sale in the market every year. 
around 6% of uh, commercial farming properties turnover in the market each year. But it means that uh, where either applicants for land or government is wanting to acquire land, they're reliant on going wherever the land is being offered for sale. And my view is that this has led to both inappropriate properties being uh, acquired. So for instance, um, in some parts of the country, the property market is quite active, government is able to buy farms, in other places not. And what I found in my research, which, which has been very interesting, for instance, in the Western Cape, I've done research that shows that um, this very significant demand for land uh, in some of the farming districts where large numbers of long-term farm workers and dwellers have been evicted. And there are small-scale farmers, former farm workers and others living on the edges of these uh, small towns in the farming areas. They have a very significant demand for land that has been unmet. They want to have access to small holdings um, on the edge of the urban periphery. Uh, they want to be able to have access to services in the town. They want to have a foothold in the, in the countryside in, and in small-scale farming in the sector that they're familiar with. But on the other hand, what's on offer? Government is buying up large commercial farms 200 kilometers away and looking for people who can manage an entire commercial farming entity. So we've got a real mismatch between supply and demand. The fact that a lot of land is being offered for sale doesn't help us to get the right land in the right place. Um, so I think that uh, the reliance on this market-based approach has made land reform have no special agenda. That's one of the things we wanted to push in this in the recommendations. We, we proposed that actually if government wants uh, to drive a land reform program as part of uh, wider development initiatives, it needs to have a special plan. It means that land reform must be part of IDPs. It means that every district in the country needs to be engaging with pe people around what are their land needs. And uh, engaging seriously around what is the demand for land means that there needs to be a special plan in every municipality. Of course, uh, the predictable criticism will be, well, municipalities are overwhelmed. How do you expect them to take on this new uh, responsibility? It clearly is a problem. But equally, it's been a problem to have a national government department uh, trying to sort of parachute in random projects around the country that are disconnected from any kind of planning for local economic development. I think, I think I mean, the whole question of uh, that land reform being at the centre of spatial planning and including the municipal IDPs is hugely important. Do, do you think it, it, it will require any overhaul of either the, the current regulatory environment, the legislation? I'm thinking of things like the Spatial Planning and Land Use Management Act, which you know have, have, have put certainly some of the land issues up front. Is there anything in particular that you think the, from the, the panel's proposals that we might see coming into that regulatory space? I'm not sure. Uh, and here I feel that I'm not adequately equipped in terms of understanding the urban context. Mm. But, um, you know, my sense is that uh, looking at the Municipal Structures Act and the Municipal Systems Act, if you look, if you read those and the responsibilities of local government and you see those in relation to land reform, it's very clear that actually uh, municipalities have responsibilities for land reform. We actually did a, a review a while back looking at all the legislation affecting uh, land reform and policy frameworks and looking at what are the implications for municipalities. Mm -hmm. There are very clear responsibilities. You know, for instance, um, if there is a land claim and a property is going to be returned to, uh, restored to uh, a claimant community, National government, the Commission on the Restitution of Land Rights, is obliged to engage with the municipality around the settlement plan and around provision of services and to integrate that 
into future budgets. Now, this is often not happening, um, but it can and should happen. Um, uh, if uh, farm workers are being evicted, uh, there's a need for municipalities to be part of uh, court processes around a forced eviction, around provision of alternative accommodation and so on. And all of this needs to be factored into um, into these plans. Now, I think that what's been quite interesting, um, of course, since elections in May this year, is that we now have a merged Department of Agriculture, Land Reform and Rural Development, a big mandate. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, And... So that is going to be potentially connecting the acquisition of land more closely with agricultural support, which has always been a bit of a... They've been operating in silos up to now. Now, what about the urban space? And who's going to be the champion of land reform for the urban space? Um, I'm not sure. I think that uh, the conversations still need to happen with uh, the Department of Human Settlements, um, with uh, SALGA, and so on. But I think that what's interesting is that uh, the president set up this interministerial committee, which is um, uh, a group of cabinet ministers who are responsible to look at what are their responsibilities in taking forward the recommendations here. And my understanding is now that uh, IMC is meeting on a fortnightly basis. Every minister has until um, late September, so they were given two months from when the report was released. They were given two months to develop an implementation plan. And the key three ministries who are driving this within the IMC are Agriculture, Rural Development and Land Reform, uh, Human Settlements and Public Works. Now, I think that that's very powerful because that's that's the land, it's the housing, it's the urban, it's the rural and it's the public as well as access to private land. If those three ministers, and interestingly, it's three women, it's Toko Didiza, um, Lindy Wesesulu and Patricia DeLille, if the three of them can have coherent and aligned uh, implementation plans, I think we can be looking at something very interesting. And the connection to the local is so important because uh, this is being driven at national level, but I know that government, in terms of um, the ministry's implementation plans, they're being pushed to say, how are you going to coordinate across sectors at district level? We know that we're, we are, we're sitting with this, in a sense, the provincial layer of government has never really known what to do about land. And now we see a big push that national government should be coordinating its efforts around land at the district mm-hmm. level. I think there's possibility. Listen, all parts of the state are constrained and overstretched, but uh, I think that at least the approach seems to be moving in the right direction. I think one of the challenges we're going to have uh, that we will play itself out is the whole question of capacity, where capacity throughout those spheres of government. So there's the alignment issues, but I do get a sense that who are going to be, how many planners, how many land experts, how many are within the country that can assist the 260, 70 municipalities? Yeah. It's a, it's a big challenge for us. That's, yeah. my, that's my sense. Yeah. Prof, um, if, we, if we take a, stick, a step back uh, from the conversation, can you briefly tell our listeners how it is that you came to be appointed by the president? to the land reform, to the presidential advisory panel on land reform? Hmm. Well, I suppose that's a bit of a mystery, isn't it? <laughs> um, <laughs> is it a phone call? Is it an email? <laughs> what's, it, what's it look like? <laughs> um, well, actually, you know, uh, I've been working with uh, PLAS, the Institute for Poverty, mm. Land and Agrarian Studies, which is this uh, research institute, uh, research and training institute at UWC uh, since the early 2000s. I've been working on land reform for, for a long time and have interacted with um, various ministers over time, including the current minister, Didiza, when she was in previously. Um, but the president actually got in touch directly. In fact, it was the day after um, the parliamentary vote. 
um, wow. in February last year. So remember when the EFF proposed a motion for uh, to establish a parliamentary committee to look into amending the constitution. The ANC then amended the uh, the motion and then supported it, and that went through on the 27th of February 2018. I actually was contacted directly by the president the next day. He'd seen me on TV, and I think that. To be honest, I think that at that point, the ANC, having adopted a resolution around expropriation without compensation at the ANC-elected Congress in uh, NASREC, uh, just at the end of 2017, it had adopted this motion on expropriation without compensation. This was deeply divided within the ANC. There wasn't a clear plan, and I think they were taken somewhat unawares by the EFF pushing sure. that motion. And there was a big question, well, what does it mean? How do we, you know? Um, and so the president did did contact me directly and, and uh, we engaged over a couple of uh, periods of time um, and I've been approached by uh, various groups in the months that followed and he made it clear that he thought that um, that expropriation without compensation was an important issue but that we needed to look at it in a broader context. Um, so there were various discussions um, and I don't really know exactly how he chose who went on the panel, but I was I was approached in August and then appointed in September. And we were given this mandate from September. It was meant to be until the end of March. It was, so six, six months it was going to be six months and it extended into eight. And at the end, it was sort of touch and go, should our report be uh, finalised and produced just before elections or after? Mm. Uh, we had been, uh, frankly, a bit overwhelmed. I think we had a very big mandate, a short period of time, uh, and almost no budget with which to consult with people. So it really was overstretched. Sure. So we extended to eight months. Um, I wouldn't. I would actually like to know how the decision was made of who went onto the panel because it was quite interesting. In the end, it was five women, five men, uh, two agricultural economists, two lawyers, two presidents of the farming associations, Agri South Africa and the African Farmers Association of South Africa, um, two individual farmers. Um, one was Nick Sarfontaine, one Tato Mochi, so a white, an older white man and a younger black woman. Fantastic. Um, and, and then two academic, academics, Tandine Ngobo and myself. So there was sort of a, somehow kind of a symmetry. Um, but I think that he probably was quite aware that we weren't going to agree <laughs> with one another when he established the, the, uh, uh, the panel. So, you know, as with all of these processes... Um, we actually engaged over a period of time with utmost respect for one another, but often quite robustly trying to persuade one another of, of particular points of view. I mean, it was, it was interesting, and we'll, we'll get to some of the recommendations that, are, that made the cut, made the report. Um, but I mean, how, how did the panel entertain those contrasting perspectives? Um, what was it that you were able to find consensus on, and what were some of those issues that ultimately... Uh, you had, I think there was even a, a separate annexure uh, yeah. that split. So maybe again, for the benefit of our listeners who haven't necessarily engaged with the report, yeah. uh, your perspective on that. Well, firstly, I'd, I would like to actually give a little um, punt that maybe people who are vaguely interested but don't want to read a very long report actually do uh, download it. Uh, it's on the GCIS we, we website. We'll make the link available. And yeah. make the link available. And if you want to just cut to the chase, you can just go to page 93 to 99. There's six pages of summarized recommendations. Um, oddly, and this I think was just a matter of available time, there isn't an executive summary. But if you read page 93 to 99, there's sort of uh, short paragraphs that just summarize the recommendations. And yes, you're right. There, are, there were areas of disagreement that are recorded. Um, so <clears throat> on page uh, 103, there's actually a, a, a list of all the recommendations that were disagreed with 
by uh, particularly um, Dan Crick, who is um, president of Agri-South Africa. And it included any mention of expropriation without compensation. Um, it also uh, included sort of any talk of a moratorium on uh, evictions from farms. Um, it, it objected to... Um, uh, to the approach around communal land and said that there must be transfer of private title to mm-hmm. residents of, of communal land. Uh, there were about 10 areas of disagreement. So how did we actually organize our work, you might ask, uh, in the short space of time? Well, firstly, we did uh, do a review of the information that we have available. And that includes, of course, there was the high-level panel, which was appointed mm-hmm. by Parliament in 2016 to 2017, um, and headed by former President Motlante. We looked at that uh, report. Our mandate was somewhat broader because he was only looking at uh, land reform under existing legislation. So a lot of the focus around uh, spatial issues, around redistribution, around expropriation were not part of that report. So we started with that. Um, We looked at available research and we divided up our work in terms of our terms of reference thematically. And we then actually got into teams and wrote opinion pieces based on what we the materials that we had so we did that as an internal process where we prepared papers presented to one another and tried to you know win one over mm-hmm. one each what each other over to our points the of view debating class again yeah and then um and that that sort of developed into some very draft ideas that we presented um, at um, a national colloquium in december 2018 uh, where a diverse array of people were, were brought together. We then actually set up uh, more specific thematic round tables. We had 10 of them. Issues around um, urban access to land, issues around a traditional authority and customary land, uh, issues around financing land reform and so on. So we identified 10 themes and in some cases we actually partnered with other institutions to bring together relevant groups of, you know, whether it was academics and experts, farmers, financiers, small-scale farmers, activists, farm workers, um, the urban poor. So we, we tried to have a series of roundtables, and then we had a second colloquium with a, a more coherent, I think, set of uh, recommendations that were debated, uh, and that was held in February. So all of this was um, was quite a tricky process, and, um, you know, as with any process like this, you write a report as a committee. You can probably hear that there are different voices in that report. Um, and, and I... I Personally, I think that um, I think that there is lots to work with in this report. In some respects, there are different kinds of recommendations. Some are quite precise, like this law is already being implemented. It needs a minor amendment and then just scale it up. But in others, it's quite exploratory, sort of pointing to a new direction, like urban land reform. It doesn't go into detail. That'll have to be left to further processes. So there are different types of recommendations. Yeah. Let's, let's uh, go back in a time machine and go back to what some call South Africa's original sin, and yeah. that's institutional land disposition. Mm. Can you give us a brief history of, of the historical milestones that happened in the past that led us to where we are right now in this clearly deep-rooted um, situation? Well, I could. Yeah, I will. Um, but I think that uh, a lot of people in their minds have something of that uh, that history uh, that I think is a little bit inaccurate in that a lot of people refer to the 1913 Natives Land Act as the moment at which black South Africans were dispossessed of land because there was this legislation that said 
um, black people may not own property or even rent property outside of the, the former homelands and it, it designated land on a racial basis and it was the basis clearly of a lot of dispossession but if one looks into uh, into historical processes uh, land dispossession of of black and African people uh, was largely was was well underway by 1913. In many ways, it confirmed prior dispossession and established these native reserves rather than being a starting point. So it so was institutionalized at that. Point. It was institutionalized at that point. But remember, that was this was uh, South Africa as a uh, as a union coming out of uh, the Anglo-Boer War. Um, and of course, all of the those two Boer republics and the two British colonies uh, that existed prior to Union, each had had forms of segregation. You know, they had different laws. Um, the Orange Free State had very clear rules around access to land, ownership, sharecropping. They had a ban on um, uh, on Indian uh, ownership of land. You know, th there were different racial laws, and in a sense, the Natives Land Act in 1913 was the first national because, of course, South Africa was a new country, uh, the first national and uh, integrated racial segregation that was imposed. Um, and, of course, it was also a milestone, not only in the sense that it, it consolidated dispossession, um, it was also... Um, uh, it was also not perfectly implemented and enforced. I mean, we saw actually black spot forced removals carrying on right through to the 1980s. So the process mm. of dispossessing people from so-called white RSA continued for decades mm. thereafter. So in a sense, it's a milestone, but it's wrong to look at it as merely a point in time. It was it was more a sort of a significant shifting moment in an ongoing process. And then, of course, we have... Um, quite uh, varied and complex processes of segregation and dispossession in, in the towns and cities. And the, of course, by the 1950s, we have the Group Areas Act. Again, that was a consolidation rather than a starting point. There'd been all these masters and servant laws, other kinds of ordinances. Um, and so that, again, was just a moment. Uh, and then from the 1950s, 60s, we have really the consolidation of the homeland system and the conversion of reserves or Bantustans into, you know, homelands and then the push towards the independence of four of those homelands um, uh, right through to the establishment of the Siskai in the 1990s. Um, but, yeah, I mean, what I've tried to say when talking about land reform is often to point out that um, maybe fixating about land dispossession is something that happened in 1913 and should have been reversed from 1994 uh, misspecifies the nature of the issue because land dispossession started so much longer before uh, and of course we have a complex history both prior to and following colonization um, and land dispossession has continued since 1994. Uh, I think one of the great surprises in our uh, process in the panel is that when the issue of a moratorium on evictions was raised members of the panel said well you know the president has has gone on record saying that there should be a moratorium on evictions and he was talking about farm workers, but any moratorium would affect all categories of evictions. And who evicts mostly in South Africa? It's the state. You know. 100%. Yeah. yeah, so evictions continue. Mm. And forced evictions, of course, continue as well. We see that, for instance, with farm workers, most people being evicted are being evicted outside of any legal process. Um, so land dispossession happens, um, continues to happen. Uh, so I would emphasize that, you know, th th there's a complex reality here. And... 
On the one hand, we see ongoing evictions and dispossession, mostly of the poor, both urban and rural. Um, and we see a very slow and, uh, and torturous process, really, of land reform that isn't really adequately either halting that process of dispossession or reversing it. I, you know, for any of our listeners out there who are you know, close in and around the Western Cape or Cape Town area, this whole question of the sort of history, and if you want to see a microcosm of it, clearly District 6 down the road, um, is there, there is a museum there in town. Mm. It really makes, if you're interested in this uh, conversation, you're interested in understanding some of the history, you want to see it play out, District 6 Museum uh, in Cape Town is, is well worth a visit. Uh, Ruth, if we bring, come to some of the back into the present day, the findings, the recommendations that were made, uh, I'm just looking at a couple of the, the, the issues. You've already talked about the detailed land audit. One of the things I was very interested in was the land reform fund. Mm. Um, I was interested in the idea of a single repository uh, on, 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 on uh, access to land. Um, and then the whole question of a land tax inquiry. These were three or four mm. that mm. came out. Mm. Uh, would, you, would you maybe want to talk about the land reform fund first up? Mm. I think that would be quite interesting. Then maybe we can talk a bit about the, the single repository and the, 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 the single um, the land tax inquiry aspect. Yeah, great. So um, the idea of a land reform fund has been uh, mooted for a long time. I remember actually in the 1990s, uh, in the context of uh, the making of the Constitution, there was talk that maybe there should be some kind of process where um, uh, people contribute to a fund. Uh, there's, in a sense, a, a white tax of people who have benefited from apartheid and should be paying for land reform. Uh, and that was never really taken forward, but it was part of the mix in the in the early 1990s, the idea that there should be a fund. Uh, and partly the idea of a fund has always been to forestall the, the prospect of expropriation without compensation. Um, that people should be contributing, including those who, who don't own land. Um, so this idea of a land reform fund was, was presented very much by private sector actors in the past year and a half. So big agribusinesses are saying, listen, expropriation without compensation is something that we're afraid of. Uh, we would like to see land reform work. We know that the state is financially constrained. Uh, why don't we have a collective effort as society to contribute to a fund? In other words, the funding of land reform should, be, should come from both public and private sources. Uh, I think that it's always been linked to an idea that the, the private sector would like to have quite a role in controlling how and where and how, uh, why land reform happens. Uh, and this, of course, has been pushed with the proposal for an agricultural development agency. So while our work was underway, uh, Rolf Mayer uh, and a group of other people started to draw up a proposal for uh, a development agency that would be a, a joint public-private uh, initiative to drive land reform and would be financed by partly by the private sector. To my mind, actually, our recommendations in this area of a land reform fund are not very clear. Um, I think the details have to be worked out. Uh, the land bank has always been uh, quite poorly uh, situated to play a major role in land reform. You know, a small minority of its uh, clients are actually um, black farmers. Um, so there's there's a sort of a vision that the private sector should be contributing to the cost of land reform and it should have a foot in the door in terms of um, of how it's implemented. Um, but 
the the land reform fund initially there was talk about uh, in our panel of what was called a rainbow fund where farmers as individuals landowners urban and rural could contribute to a fund and that that would be linked to some kind of guarantee that they would be exempt from expropriation there's always been this idea that okay. you know contributing cash rather than donating your land would be a way of contributing to land reform and that's not that hasn't ended up in the report so for now there's a principled idea that there should be a fund to which um, corporates, individuals and others can contribute. Of course, there's also a land donations uh, policy proposal um, and an argument that the state should be engaging with big property owners, big institutional owners like the mining houses, the, uh, the banks, uh, the churches very significantly. Um, and, and asking them to audit their own holdings, identify what land can be contributed. So the idea is both on the, on the land and the finance side, the private sector needs to be contributing towards this. And I think that perhaps the whole narrative around expropriation without compensation over the past two years has actually created conditions where significant private sector actors might want to be contributing either land or cash towards seeing that this process is dealt with um, rather than um, I would imagine, uh, rather than um, uh, expropriation without compensation. So I think that there's been a widespread societal recognition that there has been this original sin, it hasn't gone away, and in a context where our economy is not doing well, and a large proportion of our population feels that they haven't received the dividends of democracy, the land issue uh, is a ticking time bomb and they want to see that, that this is going to be addressed. So yeah, uh, I think that a land reform fund is, is interesting and I think that the, there is interest to contribute to it. Uh, whether government will um, drive it strategically re remains to be seen. Then there's the land tax issue. Of course, this is, I think, very important. We, um, we have a Property uh, Valuations Act, uh, a Property Rates Act, uh, but it, land taxes have never been used strategically to, mm. um, to derive uh, revenue for the state. Uh, for land reform purposes, but it could they could be, um, and it could also uh, act as a, a, a mechanism against to discourage um, uh, hoarding or speculative holding of land that's not being utilised. So we thought that that is an important issue. There have been proposals over time. We didn't manage to get into detail, but we did propose that there should be a process, uh, and we suggested some inputs towards terms of reference for a land tax inquiry. Uh, there was a third thing you mentioned. The, th the third thing was around the, the whole question of a single uh, repository yeah. and platform yeah. to access land information. I think there's all, yeah. this whole idea of fragmentation we talked about in the, in the early introduction. And uh, I think it's an important aspect that maybe yeah. you just want to quickly reflect on. Well, I think that the idea is partly access to information, both for citizens but also for institutions, you know, across the country, there's fragmented sources of information. If if uh, if you as a say you're a local municipality, um, uh, how do you access information about all the categories of land and land holding? If you're a citizen, if you're a group of people who are wanting to access land, how do you access that land, that information? We have such fragmented systems um, across different levels of government. A lot of it is not available to the public, uh, and so a lot of converging systems and making information um, available in accessible formats is a way of democratizing the conversation around land. Do you see the information asymmetry that we find in the, in the property market nowadays? Yeah, and I think that, well, there's certain categories of land on which there's relatively good information, but there are, there are black holes. Um, and I think that most people are operating in the dark. 
so I think that that's quite exciting. It's also, you know, the trends around the world of trying to make available open access information around uh, around cadastral systems, you know, ha- making that available, digitizing, making things accessible online. GIS. Yeah. GIS. <laughs> and, uh, and, and we need to do this. Um, otherwise, um, you know, the elitism and access to information continues. Prof, the report states that a more coherent land development process should be implemented in line with the provisions of a revised expropriation and possibly a restitution law. What is a coherent land development process according to the panel? Hmm. I can't remember what part of the report that came from, actually, now that you're quoting it. Um, but a coherent land development process, well, I think that what what our report kept on emphasizing is that um, we've been fragmented not only in terms of dealing with land in a rural versus an urban context, um, but also the acquisition of land has been often disconnected from uh, capacity from institutions to plan for its development. So, for instance, in the rural sector, given that land reform has been primarily about uh, agricultural land up to now, we've had one department in one ministry responsible for acquiring and transferring ownership or, or rights um, to that land. But we've had other parts of the state um, responsible for provision of services, um, development, um, farming support, etc. And there's been total misalignment. Um, well, often there are different policy frameworks, there are different legal processes, uh, there are separate institutions, there are different policy visions, there are separate budget lines, and there's not a system for sharing information. So clearly those are, those are profound problems that can't be easily addressed. But the emphasis was that we need... Um, integrated development around particular pieces of land and that's where again the shift is towards coordinating broadly at policy level but operationally at local government level. So, so the coherence that the panel uh, speaks about it's mainly aimed at the state really? Yeah well IDP processes are, are of course where the state engages with citizens um, and other actors. By statute, yeah. Uh, yeah, that is the responsibility. These are open processes. Um, but the land development process, no, I mean, there could be developers who are part of an initiative to acquire land, to subdivide, to develop, to make available for uh, a vision of land reform. Uh, I think that the state has actually been quite... Um, uh, let me put it like this: We've had a market-based approach to land, which means that the state, uh, which means that the state has chosen to rely on the market and not to expropriate. But weirdly, we've had like a heavily state, state-driven land reform process. It's been so bureaucratic. So in a sense, we're stuck between two paradigms. On the one hand, um, we're dependent on the market and what what the market offers. So there's no strategic and proactive planning as to what we want to achieve, where we want to acquire land, how it should be developed, and what it's going to be used for and looking like in the future. On the other hand, it's it's highly bureaucratic and state-mediated, which makes it very ineffective. So we're sort of stuck between the worst, in a sense, of the market and the state. But what we really need is state vision and planning, but not a partnership also with the private sector and with citizens in terms of taking forward plans. And I think that that's what's been missing. The cabinet is now considering the cabinet is now considering the findings and recommendations of the report, as you mentioned, and they have now two months to come up with implementation plans. Mm. If the president and his cabinet were to prioritize implementation of the rec- of the recommendations, then what, in your opinion, could be considered quick wins that can be implemented immediately? And then, secondly, 
what are the non-negotiables that you deem absolutely critical for the successful implementation of sustainable land reform in urban areas? Okay, super. Oh, in urban, right. Okay, so the first are, what are the quick wins? And secondly, what are the non-negotiables? Uh, we might end up actually with the same ones. Um, a lot of people have said, oh, why does the state need to expropriate land? Uh, it doesn't need to take land from uh, the, from owners. Uh, it should use its own land. And I've actually always argued against that view. And the reason why is that while the state is a big property owner, uh, a lot of its land is not available for redistribution. We're talking sure. about, you know, the communal areas, the former Bantustans. We're talking about national parks and uh, and other categories of state land. And yet it's true that the state does hold uh, vacant or unutilized, undeveloped land that is strategically located um, around the country and there has been a process of trying to audit that land and identify properties that are available for redistribution and this process started last year um, where 30,000 land parcels held by public works have been identified as potentially available for redistribution and that's urban as well as rural. Now, my, in my view, there's a need for a clear approach that says, okay, where are these land holdings and how can they meet existing land needs that we're already aware of? Um, and I think that starting in the cities actually might be a very good way of doing it, to, to map out and say, okay, where are these? And we see them right here in Cape Town. We see open, undeveloped areas of land. At the same time, we have a, a crisis of urbanization with uh, with, with unplanned uh, extension of settlement on the urban periphery, far away from economic opportunities, far away from transport networks. You know, the sort of the vision of infilling the cities in a strategic way, making available social housing, uh, it could be public and private partnerships, but making available accessible housing and other land uses for the poor, bringing the poor into the city centre. That's where, where I would see uh, is a really significant one. So let's look at at least the, the big metros. If the big metros were to get that right and have a proper spatial transformation vision, call it land reform. It can be partly about housing, but it should be broader than housing. Um, and it should start with the state using what it's got. And I was particularly pleased to hear uh, just in the week after our um, uh, report was uh, released that uh, Minister de Lille announced a freeze or a moratorium on the selling off of state, state land assets. Uh, and I thought, right, good, a starting point. So firstly, stop privatizing, stop selling off the family silver to the highest bidder. Let's take stock of what's there and have a really careful look at how to use this for the public good to overcome spatial uh, inequalities. Then let's move from there. So that would be one. There are a lot of details in our report, so it's hard to really prioritize. Sure. But I think that uh, get, using the state land as the lever is a good starting point. Um, uh, secondly, I think that um, uh, moving towards these locally driven processes. Remember that we said one of the problems is that we've had a process that's been driven largely by the supply of land rather than engaging with people around what are their land needs. So starting these processes right now, IDP processes must be starting to ask people seriously about their land needs and starting to map out those land needs. Um, so I think that that, that is a priority. Um, the, there's one thing that, uh, there, there are two bills that are proposed in here that I very much hope will move. As one is the expropriation bill that's already been published. I think that that can and must go through. There might be amendments to it, but I would expect within the next year we're going to see it debated in Parliament. But there are two other laws, uh, and the one is the Land Records Bill. And the Land Records Bill is about uh, making visible and making recordable uh, the land rights of everyone. 
And I think that that's a big paradigm shift. So that's a way from saying only private title or other kinds of formal mm. tenure get recorded. Um, and rather saying uh, all types of, of occupation and property rights can be recorded. And again, this is in line with movements around the world, which are providing open access, cheap ways for people to use uh, GPS, uh, GIS kind of technology. People are walking around phones, uploading information onto a cloud. Uh, and that's how in many developing countries where the, the cadaster doesn't reach you know, sure. most people, that this is how bottom-up systems of recording rights is happening. And I think that that's crucial. That's part of this sort of rethinking land administration. The second law that I hope will be pushed is what we call a land redistribution bill, or some people call a land reform framework bill. Um, and the idea there is to provide an overarching framework of what are the principles that should guide all land reform. Uh, and included in it is a gap in our legal framework. Uh, Section 25.5 of the Constitution says that there should be access to land for all citizens on an equitable basis. And there's no law that mm. says what is an equitable basis. It right. hasn't been operationalized. And so in a sense you have a right, but it's not clear what that right consists of or what the state must do, how to hold the state to account for distribution of land on an equitable basis. Um, and the result of that is that we have a process which is rife with corruption. You know, government buys farms and then decides who do we give it to? Do we give it to an, a single elite person? Do we subdivide it and give it to the poor? Uh, there's no system for rationing the limited public resources that we have. So we should have uh, a, a land redistribution bill that says what is an equitable basis. And I think that this is where the big fight will happen around the class agenda of land reform. And that's where I think our report is really trying to push is to say an elite oriented land reform is actually unacceptable and that's where we've drifted into since the 1990s this is a pushback to saying people with the most urgent needs must be prioritized so I hope that that will happen. And one of the proposals that would go into that um, redistribution bill is the idea of a land rights protector, an ombudsperson with similar functions and powers to the public protector, but somebody who can be appealed to where there are grievances, where there are disputes, and who could have investigatory powers and make findings, uh, both against private entities, but also particularly against the state. Professor Hall, we've taken 50 minutes of your time yeah. and you've given us a wealth of information and an amazing reflection on the summary of, of the, the report of the Land Reform Panel. Thank you so much for your time. Congratulations on your role and to your fellow panel, panel members for putting out the report. Congratulations on that. Best of luck in the future as to where it goes and the, the legislative aspects you've talked about. We'll certainly be watching it uh, closely and hopefully we can come back maybe in a year's time and reflect on where are we at, how, how, how are we moving forward. All the very best and thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. All the best. Thanks. Get involved, get informed, and most importantly, get subscribed. You can find us on our Twitter feed at Talking Transfo and the number one. That's Talking Transfo one. Talking Transformations music kindly supplied by Tribal Need. Find them at tribalneed.com.